Well, today we return back to Daniel chapter 7. If you were here with us last week, you'll know that we kicked off that very famous chapter talking about grand things. Uh, I've got one section in, and I expect that today we'll get the second section in and hopefully, Lord willing, wrap up next week with a third week for this chapter. As we unpack Daniel's vision, we saw that there was a scene playing out that Daniel observes. He he watches this event take place in a vision, and the event that he sees is that of four beasts, each different from one another, but coming out of the great sea. And as they come out of the sea, each of them rules on earth for a time until the next one displaces and replaces it all the way down to the fourth beast, which is identified with a whole bunch of very distinct features. But by the time we get to the end of the first scene of this vision, we see that judgment finally comes upon these four beasts, these four kingdoms of the earth. That was the final part of the first scene. But this vision consists of two scenes, so we're going to get into the second scene of his vision today. That's all I hope to do. We're only going to be in verses 13 through 18. If you have your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 7. I'll stick the pertinent verses up here as we walk through them, but it might be nice for you to follow along in your own Bibles. And here's my hope today. I'm going to read through our text, uh, pray, and then go back and unpack a verse or two at a time. But what we're going to see in the text today are very important things that will help us understand the whole chapter, okay? There's a lot of questions that are going to come up today that we're going to have to answer into next week, but I hope to show you some things. I hope that today will essentially be saying, look at this, look at this, take a note of what is being said in this verse, bookmark this, log this, because I think that the scene that is about to unfold here is a bit of the key, the interpretive key to understanding all of Daniel chapter 7 and actually an enormously important interpretive key to understanding many other eschatology passages of the Bible, end times passages of the Bible, to include even books like Revelation, large portions of them. I really would love for you to see these today. Follow along with me, if you will, as I read through our text and then pray. I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, in these short few verses that we are covering today, there is much taking place. Uh, This scene is one that plays out grand themes, uh, things that are far bigger than us, far greater than our little moment in history where we live. And so, Father, I pray that you'd help us to see what's happening here, Uh, but mostly, Lord, that whatever we learn will lead to our greater love and worship for you as we understand these texts. So help us, we pray in Jesus' good name. Amen. 
Amen. Go ahead and go back to verse 13, and we'll kick off again the second scene of Daniel's vision. Verse 13 says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So you'll see at the beginning of the language here, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold. Now he said this earlier when he was introducing the fourth beast. And I I paused last week when I finished walking through the first three, and he paused, Daniel did, when he's retelling this vision. He goes, behold, then I saw a fourth beast. It was an indicator that we're supposed to just pause for a second, take special note about what is being explained next. It's kind of a, stop, look here, don't forget this, focus in. And so that's what he does again here, and it shows us that this is the start of the next scene of this vision. New characters will be introduced. And he refers to one like a son of man who comes with the clouds of heaven. Son of man. This is a very famous phrase in the Bible. It's, it's seen both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It's used more often in the Old Testament than the New, but only slightly more often. In fact, if you were to do a quick search on how many times that phrase, son of man, is used in the Old Testament, you'd find 108. 108 times we will see this phrase, son of man, used just like that. And every time, without fail, it is used to refer to a human. It emphasizes a person's humanity. Now, the reason I pause for dramatic effect there as I say that is because as as a a man who grew up in Christian households and has heard Son of Man preached on many times and read through many books regarding the Son of Man language, it is not uncommon to find Christians today who say the opposite of what I just said, who will say that the term Son of Man is actually an emphasis of Jesus's deity or one's divinity. In other words, if you see the language Son of Man, it means divine. That is not remotely true. Just want you to know. Of the 108 times that it is used in the Old Testament, every single time without fail, it's referring to a human. In fact, 93 of those 108 times, the term son of man is applied to Ezekiel, the human prophet in his prophecy, where an angel of the Lord says to him, son of man, speaking to Ezekiel. In fact, the only other place in Daniel The second of two places in Daniel that the word son of man is used, that term, it is applied only to Daniel himself. An angel in chapter 8 will look to Daniel and say, hey, you, Daniel, son of man, speaking to him. It is a reference to one's humanity. This is why we see places even distinguishing between the nature of God and man. We see verses like Numbers 23, 19. For God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Because man is not the same as divine. We, in our natural sense, cannot be called divine. And so that's what son of man is. What is it that Daniel sees? He sees a human. And that's the point. He sees humankind. And the fact that this next character in the vision is like a son of man distinguishes him from the four beasts. What we're going to see today especially, and this is going to carry into next week, is that one of the single biggest points of this entire vision is that those beasts are different than the next kingdom, than the son of man, than this other figure in the vision. It distinguishes 
between them. Because out of all creation, man is made uniquely in the image of God. Is a lion made in the image of God? A bear? A leopard? The dragon-type beast here? The horns that you see on the... No, none of those are made in the image of God, but a son of man is. So right off the bat, we see something distinct about this particular one. In Psalm chapter 8, we'll see this son of man language used again, and the astute observer will go, wait, wait a second, I think I've seen that in the New Testament somewhere. We'll get there. But in Psalm chapter 8, David writes this concerning the Son of Man. He says, what is man, speaking to to God, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the Son of Man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. If you read through Psalm chapter 8, you'll see that the point of Psalm 8 is to show that God is different than humanity. God is different than man and son of man. And yet, as image bearers of God, we as humankind are given dominion over creation. And where did we see this first in the Bible? We saw it in Adam, the first man. Just as Adam and all mankind who follow after him, had been given dominion over the beasts to name them, to care for them, to garden, to to subdue the earth. So it is with this son of man. He is given dominion over all of these beasts. It's interesting that Daniel chapter 7 follows after Daniel 6. And if you remember last week, I explained that's not the chronology. Technically, the events of chapter 7 come before chapter 5. If you were there last week, you'll understand what I mean by that. But chapter 6 is a story of God demonstrating his dominion over the beasts in the lion's den. The lions could not harm Daniel because God commands beasts. While the verse in Psalm 8 that I just read there, originally written, was referring to humankind. Some of you might have picked up and known, and if you were here with us in our Hebrews sermon series, you might remember that the author of Hebrews uses that verse to refer primarily to one particular single individual. Who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus is the chief representative of humanity. If an Old Testament verse talking about humanity and its position on earth Humankind, Adam and his dominion mandate being given to him, how much more will that be true of the second Adam, Jesus? And that brings us to the New Testament use of son of man. You may be very well aware that in the New Testament, this same title, son of man, is used more than 80 times. And every single one without fail is used to refer to Jesus Christ himself. In fact, it is Jesus' most used title when referring to himself. Jesus refers to himself as son of man more than any other title in the New Testament. One of those places that's very notable carries some of the same features as here in Daniel 7. I'll read it for you in Matthew chapter 26. He's replying to the Pharisees who are uh, having him under trial. And they are crying out, are you the Christ? Just tell us if you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And this is what Jesus says. You have said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus identifies with this son of man right here in Daniel chapter 7. 
In other words, the people who were familiar with these texts would have understood what Jesus was doing. That he was claiming what is about to be said about this one presented before the Ancient of Days is true of him. And it actually caused them to cry out, to tear their robes, to shriek in disgust and gnash their teeth in anger and fury. How dare this man Jesus claim that he was this son of man given all dominion. And yet that's exactly what Jesus was doing. It was a great claim. But there is something else that is different about this son of man. And I kind of breezed over it in the text, but it's the clouds of heaven there. As Adam was formed from the dust of the earth, this one comes with the clouds of heaven. And again, this distinguishes between the beasts who came out of the sea from the earthliness. But even more than that, this distinguishes this particular son of man from all other mankind. John chapter 8, verse 23, Jesus even said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. You and I, as humankind, as sons of man in the little s sense, as sons of, and da- sons of Adam, daughters of Eve, to use that C.S. Lang- Lewis kind of language, you and I in our natural state are not this son of man. We did not come on the clouds of heaven. We came from this earth. In fact, we were born into and we were born out of the same realm as these beasts, the great sea, this chaos, this disorder, the fallen nature of this world and all of the sinfulness. And so Daniel, seeing this vision, knows that no mere man could satisfy the image reused here. He knew that this must be someone special. There's something distinctive about this particular son of man. He is one of us, but he is also more than one of us. This is one of those amazing things to study throughout the Bible, the way that the Bible talks about Jesus. He is, to be sure, fully man. He is human, born on earth as a little baby. We just celebrated at Christmas time. He lived a life here, a life where he was tempted, where he had to endure pain, where his body aged and got older, where he had the kinds of limits that humans have on us. And yet, he never stopped being God. The New Testament authors especially strain at language to try to explain how this works. One famous place is in Philippians chapter 2. It says of Jesus, when he came to the earth, that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus really did become human. But this language prevents us. This language here in Philippians and in Daniel and many other places in the Bible, this language prevents us from ever thinking that Jesus stopped being God. This son of man is one of us and more. And again, that's made clear with one other word that I breezed over here in the Daniel 7 passage. Did you miss it? Like. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. If you were with us last week, you'll know that I paused and I tried to make the point that we saw for all four beasts. The first three, it's made very clear. The fourth one, it's about one of his attributes. That word like And what I said about this was clear in the text. It's just clearly stated. Daniel did not see a lion in the first beast. He saw one like a lion. 
He did not see a bear, but he saw something like a bear. Not a leopard, something like a leopard. And while the beast that came out of the sea, the fourth beast, wasn't said to be like a beast because it was a beast, the horn was given eyes like the eyes of a man, okay, of that beast. And so we see this simile language being used. It was to remind us this is a vision. In other words, those beasts are something more. It's not that you and I should fear that there's an actual physical lion that might step on somebody on the earth but that this is representing something bigger. And all of us can see and understand that symbolism as we read texts like this. But that extends to the Son of Man too. Because in this vision, this Son of Man is not merely a Son of Man. He is one like a Son of Man. So in this part of the vision, it should remind us that this human figure represents far more than a mere single human. And we're going to see that as the text continues. One more place that we see this kind of language about the the, the mankind being distinct, the first man different from this last, the first Adam different from the last, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says this, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Here's why that matters. I'm asking you to bookmark this for now because I'm going to make this claim today and we're going to unpack it a little bit today and even much more into next week, Lord willing. Bookmark this. While this Son of Man is chiefly symbolic of Jesus, to be sure, as we're going to see, this figure represents all of God's people. Those who are of heaven, as I said in 1 Corinthians 15. Those who are in Christ. So Son of Man is chiefly Jesus and also all of us. Now, how, where do I get that? Follow me. Follow me exactly what the text says. We'll be there in two verses. But what does it say about this particular Son of Man? It says, he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So the Son of Man is not alone in this part of the vision. He stands before the very same throne as the four beasts in the previous verses. Verses 9 through 12 tell about the dominion stripped and the destruction of the first four beasts. It says the fourth beast was different even than the third because his dominion and life were extinguished at one fell swoop. While the first three would have their dominion taken but their life would extend for a little more time up until that day of final judgment. They received judgment. And they met their end. But what does Jesus receive when he stands before the ancient days? When he steps before him? Verse 14 tells us, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So who is the giver of this dominion? The ancient of days. The Ancient of Days, before whom Jesus stands, this Son of Man figure stands, gives dominion. The Father grants the Son and those in Him dominion and power and glory. And that's what we're going to see unpacked even further. The Son of Man is the receiver, chiefly Jesus And while we're going to unpack this part further again, when is the dominion given to Jesus? When is that actually granted to him? It is granted after his substitutionary death on the cross. Now pause. If you're going, whoa, where's that? It's not in this text. It's not in here. 
It's not mentioned. In fact, what is, what is amazing to consider, Daniel 7 gives us enormous, gigantic, super huge view of history, and it never mentions the incarnation of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, never even mentioned. Now, why? Because that's not the point. The point of this text is to not tell Daniel's readers and himself, as he's receiving this vision, things about this Son of Man. It's to tell Daniel and his readers things about the kingdom, which is under the authority of the Son of Man. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 28, 18, later, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Hebrews 2, 9, which references uh, uh, Psalm 8, which I said earlier, Hebrews 2.9 says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Here's Here's what this means. As one member of the Godhead, creator God, Jesus has always been in authority over creation. But there is a kind of glory and authority that is especially due to Jesus as a result of his death and resurrection. So why is Jesus crowned with glory and honor? Reading it exactly. Because of the suffering of death. So I think it is safe to say that what we're seeing happening in Daniel chapter 7 comes after his death, his burial, and his resurrection. I think that's where we can place this. You might remember even in John's revelation, the very end of the Bible, when heaven, uh, heaven's vision is before John, he, he sees the host standing around the throne. And uh, this, there's a scroll present with the seven seals. This is going to kind of, I've heard it called the title deed to, to, the, to the kingdom of the earth. And it's not opened yet. And, and John literally starts to weep because no one in heaven or on earth is found worthy to open the scroll. And do you remember what happens next in that scene? He sees one as a lamb who was slain approach the throne, the only one worthy to open the scroll. By his slain nature, he is worthy to open it. As he approaches the throne, Jesus receives dominion and glory. I think that's when this is referring. I don't think this means prior to creation, before it was ever made, that was the case. Of course he was in authority then, but there's a kind of authority that Jesus takes hold of after his death, burial, and resurrection. And what kind of kingdom is it? An everlasting one. He's given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. This is the permanence of Jesus' kingdom being referenced. This is the indestructible, eternal nature of his kingdom. It is one that shall not pass away, his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And that verse 14 concludes the vision for Daniel. That's that's what Daniel sees. The, The record of what he saw in that vision concludes at verse 14. And so this whole vision is basically, again, you could break it down into two scenes. A succession of beasts who eventually stand before the judgment seat of God and are judged. Dominion is stripped and they are destroyed. 
And the second scene is that Jesus stands before the judgment seat of God and receives commendation and authority and an everlasting kingdom. The dominion is taken from the beasts and handed to the Son. Now up to this point, Daniel has been telling us about his vision. Now, in the following verses, we hear his response. And there's a few interesting things to note as he tells us what happens next. Look at verse 15 and 16. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this, so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. So first, Daniel was anxious. He knew that this was a serious vision. In fact, he was anxious in the same way that Belshazzar, who will receive the words of God, is anxious, the same way that Nebuchadnezzar will feel the same way earlier when he receives the vision from God. As this happens throughout Daniel, people realize just how important this is. Daniel is no exception to that. The visions of his head alarmed him. So if that's you, if you read these things and go, oh my goodness, what's going on here? This is significant. Well, that's right. It is significant. And Daniel knew it too. And so what does he do? He approaches one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. This is really interesting. Daniel's not fully out of this vision yet. At the beginning of this series, I spent some time explaining how visions are different than any other experience that you and I might have. The closest thing we try to tie them to is dreams. It's, it's, it's closest to that. But what happens in a vision is far more impactful. It's far more meaningful. It's far more memorable. It can be memorized, remembered almost perfectly when they interpret these things out of the Bible and write them down for our record. Uh, and, and even when things don't seem to make sense, they have actual significance in what's going on in them. And also... There's a kind of interaction that takes place inside of these visions. So Daniel, in the vision, in some sense, approaches one of the angels from earlier in the vision. I think it's an angel because there's a couple of other places prior to this uh, where there's many serving Jesus, right? Serving the Son of Man. We, saw, we just saw that. And prior to that, in verses 9 through 12, we see a thousand thousands serving the Ancient of Days and 10,000, 10,000 standing before him. So it's got to be one of those. It's either an angel or perhaps a human. It's a creature of some kind that John, not John, but Daniel, taps on the shoulder and goes, what, what, what did I just see? It's interesting that Daniel, excuse me, John in the book of Revelation, seeing a very similar vision, will actually ask an angel the same thing. He asks an elder another time in Revelation, what am I seeing? He asks somebody in the vision. And so Daniel does the same. What am I to see here? Now, do you remember what gift God specifically gave to Daniel earlier in this book? He gave Daniel the explicit gift of being able to interpret visions and dreams. It says in Daniel 1.17, to Daniel, he gave understanding in all visions and dreams. Daniel had that gift. We spent several weeks recently walking through spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 11 through 14. And one of the things that I said then is that the use of spiritual gifts is not like the employing of a supernatural power, like a, a, like a superpower. And when anytime a person wants to do it, they can do it. It doesn't work like that. Every exercise of a supernatural gift granted by God is entirely dependent upon him. Here, Daniel did not know the interpretation. He had to get it from someone else in this vision, probably an angel. And so he goes and asks, what are we to make of this thing? And so he told me, and made known to me the interpretation of the things. And here's the interpretation provided in verses 17 through 18. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. 
Okay. This is it. Daniel just described the details of his vision in 13 verses. Pretty long and exhaustive verses, actually. Some of the details and features given were quite grand. And here, in two short, pithy sentences, this angel gives the interpretation to Daniel. And what he says is very critical for us to see. Because if you're wondering, whoa, that was a crazy vision. What are we to make of this? The angel tells us what to make of it. This is so critical that we see that visions are not subjective. Visions are not open to interpretation. Hey, Daniel, whatever it means to you is whatever it means. No, there is a right way to view this vision, and there is a wrong way to view this vision. And by God's good grace, we are provided a Holy Spirit-inspired interpretation that we would not take these verses and go crazy with them. I said earlier that there are two scenes playing out. One of the reasons I think there's two scenes is because that's exactly what the angel describes. There's two verses describing the two scenes. The first regards the great beasts and their judgment, and the second regards the saints, the most high, receiving the kingdom. That's what this is about. Going to that first verse, 17, he tells us the meaning of the four beasts. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. Now, quick pause. Because if you were here with us last week, or heard me mention it even earlier in this sermon, you might remember that I said that these beasts were not singular kings, but were the demonic power behind earthly kings and kingdoms. And I don't think this undermines that at all. I'll explain why. Because kings here is referring to far more than a singular individual. And we know this in this text for several reasons. One of these being that later in this very chapter, when this angel expounds, he begins to unpack what he said here. He says this specifically concerning the fourth beast. In verse 23, this angel says, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth. And he'll actually go on to name ten kings. He doesn't give the names. He just says there will be ten kings and then an eleventh king. So it's very clear when he says king, he's using that very common ancient language that uses a king and kingdom in a synonymous way. They're interchangeable. In fact, we saw this in chapter two when Daniel referred to the head of gold of the statue as Nebuchadnezzar himself. You, O king Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. But later in that same chapter, Daniel told us that that head of gold was a kingdom. And so it to be sure, did include Nebuchadnezzar, but meant more than just an individual king. Nebuchadnezzar would die and Babylon would continue on for generations after he died. So this, these kingdoms, these kings referenced here can be thought of in that way. Now, for those of you nerds out there who love studying into this stuff, this might be interesting. It is interesting to note that both in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, and in the, what's called the Theodosian text, which is actually the dominantly used text in history to tell us what's going on in this Aramaic passage. The word for king is translated kingdoms in both of those. So even the most ancient writers that we see all refer to king as kingdoms there and see that as not referring to singular individual kings, but even all the people in Jesus' day would have understood kings to mean kingdoms. So these beasts are not merely individuals but the spiritual forces that are at work behind them. Second, he tells us that the meaning of the vision 
of the Son of Man. Look at what he tells us about the Son of Man portion. That second scene in verse 18. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Did you notice something? Where is the Son of Man? But I'll read it again. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Now, you and I just read through verses 13 and 14, and verse 14 specifically said, and to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And that shall last forever and ever. But here, the angel interprets that vision by saying that the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Now, in case you think that there's something weird here, two more times in chapter 7, two more times in chapter 7, both Daniel and the angel will say again, not the Son of Man receiving the dominion, but the saints of the Most High will receive dominion. We'll unpack again more next week as we look at those texts. But what is very clear here is what I said earlier. The son of man that Daniel sees in this vision refers chiefly to Jesus, but it is also representative of all of God's people, the saints of the Most High. Later, we're going to deal with the saints reigning. In what way is this our corporate son of man kind of reigning? Uh, we will deal with the fourth beast and the ten kings, the little horn, uh, and all the details that are associated with there. And most importantly, because I know this is always on the mind when we approach passages like this, we're going to deal with when. When is all this supposed to take place? I'm not going to give you a date. <laughs> okay, so don't worry about that. But I do think that we can have some indication as to what this passage leads us to expect for our future. Today, here's why I want to, how I want to conclude, by considering why this vision was granted. Why, why this is here, the key interpretive clue. The vision can be summarized in this way. This vision was given to distinguish between the temporary nature of the reign of the four beasts and the permanent nature of the reign of Christ in his saints. That is why it is here to show us the difference between the temporary and judged nature of the earthly kingdoms and the perfect and eternal and permanent nature of Jesus' kingdom and our reigning with him. That's why the vision was given. To be sure, there are other details that matter. Because it's a vision recorded and canonized, sacred scripture, all those details do matter, and they're true. They're not superfluous. I'll just stick something else in there to make it interesting. No, it's not arbitrary. They're meaningful. But the reason that's there is to distinguish between the temporary nature of the reign of the beasts and the permanent nature of the reign of the Son of Man. Now, if you don't feel satisfied by that, Daniel doesn't either. Because Daniel's next question, as we'll we'll see next week, he's going to go, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. What about the fourth beast? That's his whole point. (laughs) Hold on. Thank you for that. But what about this crazy fourth beast? What's going on there? And the angel will unpack that for him. So if you feel that lack of satisfaction by this answer, so does the writer of sacred scripture here. The reign of those four beasts will all share some things in common. I want to close by considering the the attributes of those four beasts as distinguished from what we see of the reign of Christ. First, they all have the same source. They all have the same source, chaos, disorder. They all come from the great sea. Remember at the beginning of the, the passage, it says that in verse two. 
In fact, if we were to see the correlation, like I brought up last week, between this uh, vision of the four beasts and then also the vision of the kingdoms, uh, of the statue that was given to Nebuchadnezzar. We saw in his mind the golden head, the silver chest, and then the, the bronze belly and the iron thighs uh, and legs and feet. As he sees this vision, we see yet again, that's a single statue referring to a succession of kingdoms. It's not tons of different statues. It's all one. They all have the same source. All godless governments are at root demonic. And that leads us to the second point, that they are being empowered. All of these four beasts, all of these, all of these earthly kingdoms are being empowered by spiritual forces. One point I tried to drive home last week was to warn you to not let materialism invade your views of history. Christians have tried to be good about this in other categories of our living. We do things, things very spiritual in lots of ways, but oftentimes when we open a history book, we go, well, this is just people making people decisions. No, God is at work. Spiritual forces are at work. Demonic forces, angelic forces, that's what's happening. And it's why the New Testament continually tells us to wage spiritual battles against the heavenly realm, to not don armor like the world, to fight in a different way because we are waging spiritual war. That's what we are living in as believers. And we must not get sucked into thinking that it's just a material history. All of this has significant meaning. So these beasts all come from the same source, chaos, disorder. They are not from heaven. They are not from above. They do not come in the clouds of heaven like the Son of Man does. They come from the place of chaos, disorder. The pagan nations arise from the Gentile nations. They are being empowered by spiritual, demonic forces. Jesus even tries to distinguish between his kingdom and these other earthly kingdoms many times in his teaching in the New Testament. One such place is Matthew chapter 20. Verses 25 through 26, he says this, he called them, his disciples to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Jesus shows lots of places like that where he tells us about the differences between what will be observed about the true kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this earth. It doesn't look the same. We should expect then great injustice from our earthly leaders. We should not be surprised when we see people who have boldly and openly rejected Christ to then operate as though they reject Christ, as though they do not honor his authority, as though they do not see themselves in submission to him. Once that goes, we we should not be remotely surprised and expect that they should live according to light when they have proven to be a part of darkness. They have been empowered by spiritual forces and they are not the forces of good, but of the power of the prince of the air, as Ephesians 2 tells us. And lastly, what we see here very clearly is that the reign of these four beasts will not last. The clock is ticking. Their time is set. None of these earthly powers will last for forever. They will all fall. Last week we saw that each one will fall subsequent to the next one. So when, when the next one comes to replace it, the first will fall. Then the second will take over. Then the third will replace that. Then the fourth will replace that. And the one major difference between the fourth beast and the other three in this text is that those other three lose their dominion, but they, their lives are prolonged for a season and a time, it says in verse 12. They, the, the demonic forces and powers survive until final judgment, but that is different than the fourth beast because the fourth beast will lose both his life and his kingdom at the same time at the point of final judgment. But Jesus' kingdom is altogether different. Christ's kingdom is not like 
the kingdoms of this earth. And here are a few ways as we see how, according to the text. First, Jesus' kingdom is from above. I made that point, coming, behold, coming on the clouds. When he stands before the Lord in judgment, he doesn't deserve that judgment by his perfect living, his earning of salvation for all those who will ever believe. And yet Jesus, standing before the Father, gets dominion, commendation. He does not get judgment that the other beast received. His kingdom is from above. It is unlike the other kingdoms. Jesus even said as much in John chapter 18, standing in front of Pilate. And Pilate is the chief official political ruler. He is the emperor in Jerusalem. He is, by extension, the emperor's power in Jerusalem. And what does Pilate say with Jesus? He's challenging. What, you're a king? How come you're not doing anything to stop this from happening? This is what Jesus says to him. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And that's what we just said. Jesus' kingdom is from above. Does not come from where all these earthly kingdoms come from. Different origins. This, of course, doesn't mean that Christ's kingdom has no relationship to this world. It hovers above it with no impact. No, not at all. But it means not only that his kingdom has heavenly origins, but that it also does not operate like the kingdoms of this world. This is why we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We see those as distinct, and yet one is to impact the other. The kingdom of God is to impact the kingdoms of this earth. Jesus' kingdom is from above. That's one difference. Second difference, the advance of Christ's kingdom is unlike that of the earthly kingdoms. How do earthly kingdoms advance? By power, by influence, by bloodshed, by war, by extortion. Not so with Christ's kingdom. In fact, Jesus said almost exactly that in Luke chapter 17. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is. We're there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Jesus was declaring to these guys, the kingdom of God has already come in Christ coming to the earth. He has established, he has planted his church on this earth and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He will not lose. His church will succeed in this kingdom building endeavor. But the advance of that church, of his kingdom, is not coming in ways that can be observed. In fact, some of the most atrocious errors in Western history can be attributed to people thinking that the church should be advanced like the world. When you see things like crusades, Spanish inquisitions, when you see things like this that was an attempt to do that, this was people who said they were Christian and were not and tried to run the world's playbook to advance the church. That's not supposed to happen. This is not advanced by bloodshed. This is not advanced by us conquering more lands and more nations and taking over more square footage. It is not the way his kingdom will advance. The earthly kingdoms advance that way. The heavenly kingdom is to advance in an entirely different way. And so this means that the cross looked like a defeat, but in fact, it was the greatest victory in the history of the world. It was not gonna, it's not gonna advance in ways that you can observe. 
When, when, when dictators come in and destroy, wipe out, put to death neighborhoods full of Christians, that lights a fire in that nation that most often produces a greater impact of the Christian good in those areas. That's why we see through all throughout history, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Because every earthly attempt to stamp out Christians by worldly methods produces successes in the kingdom of God. The cross itself is the best example of that. It looked like defeat. The world could look and go, aha, finally done with that Jesus. We defeated him once and for all. He's gone. His disciples have scattered. We won. But you and I know the opposite is true. In fact, in Colossians 2.15, it says of Jesus, of, actually it says of the Father in Jesus, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What's the triumph? The cross. The cross, the death, the bloodshed of our holy and perfect Savior Jesus was the death blow for the kingdoms of this earth. We are to advance his kingdom, but we are to do so by a different playbook. We are to follow the plan laid out by Jesus, a proclamation of the gospel to the watching world. So first, Jesus' kingdom is from above. Second, the advance of his kingdom is unlike that of the earthly kingdoms. Third, he shares his rule with us. He shares his rule with us. Now again, much more on this next week, but we saw this a little bit today. The saints reign in Christ. Verse 18, the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. The saints, the Christians receive the kingdom. They get it forever and ever. It says in verse 27, the same, the same passage, about this same passage, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Christians reign in Christ. You notice that when Jesus rules, he shares that rule with his saints, unlike the authoritarian dictators of the earthly kingdoms. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that by grace alone, we are redeemed out of the transgressions of our sinfulness, our wickedness, us being dead in that state. And it says this in verse 6 through 7. And as that happened, he raises us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's mind-blowing. As dominion was first granted to Adam, the first man, dominion over this earth was granted to Adam to subdue the earth, to multiply and fill the earth with faithful God worshipers, to care for it, to work the garden, name the beasts, be the highest in authority on on this creation. This dominion mandate continues for us today. And what was broken in Adam has been restored in Christ. And his kingship is absolute. It is absolute. So what makes this not heretical? Here's here's what would make this heretical. To take out the term in Christ. If I were to say to you, you all are going to be kings. You all are going to rule. You are going to reign. You're all going to have your thrones. You're in charge of everything problem until we say in Christ. Every good that you get, both now and in eternity, is in Christ. Every good. That's how you get that. How do you reign? You reign in Christ. Are you seated on the throne, the right hand next to God? Yes, in Christ. That's how. He is our chief 
representative. He will receive all worship forever. You don't deserve worship. I don't deserve worship. We will never receive and praise and worship like King Jesus will, but we reign with him for all eternity. We receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever in Christ. And his kingship is absolute. Jesus has all authority. No other ruler has that kind of authority. Jesus is not just a king. He is the king of kings. No one has ever been given the absolute kind of authority that Jesus has been given. When Jesus speaks in his word on a subject, that's all there is to it. No matter how good of a person you feel, I'm going to speak to the non-believer today. If you're a non-believer here with us today, you're like, I'm not really sure I'd call myself a Christian. Listen, if you think that you're kind of a good person, Jesus disagrees. Jesus says, you are not a good person, you are a sinner. And you are deserving of just wrath and punishment. And wages of sin, what you deserve for your sinfulness is death, hell, for all eternity. Jesus says it, and there is no retort. We will not stand someday in the seat of judgment and challenge God. And say, you answer me. No. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? He is judge and we are not. When Jesus declares something, it is definitive. If he says something is sin, it is. And no matter how many earthly councils try to throw that out, no matter how many uh, constitutions or emperors or congresses or parliaments try to say homosexuality is good and wonderful and to be celebrated, they are wrong and Jesus is right. You need to know today, this very day, all around the globe, pastors have agreed together to stand in solidarity with Canadian pastors due to a bill that's just been passed in their parliament. And as I understand, passed with flying colors. Bill C-4 that specifically criminalizes what they define as conversion therapy. This is where the parliament in Canada has declared that any person who tries to help someone not act upon homosexual impulses, not act upon uh, non-binary or transgender impulses, to include children, are now subject to a fine and maybe even up to two to five years in prison simply by doing that. If a parent tells their 15-year-old, buddy, you're a boy, not a girl, the language of that bill technically makes that parent a criminal. And this, of course, then means that every pastor who would ever preach just literally read words of sacred scripture out loud will absolutely be under fire. In fact, I want to read just part of the language here to show you the kind of absolute and utter arrogance of these earthly rulers who do not have absolute authority, what they say about what they call conversion therapy. Conversion therapy causes harm to society because, among other things, it is based on and propagates myths and stereotypes about sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression, including the myth that heterosexuality, cisgender gender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions. In light of those harms, it is important to discourage and denounce the provision of conversion therapy in order to protect the human dignity and equality of all Canadians. And if you disagree and operate contrary, two to five years in prison could be what happens to you. 
Right now, there'll be millions of pastors around the world who, Christians around the world and their associated churches and pastors who will make that claim today. Jesus Christ alone is in all authority. He said homosexuality is a sin. He said transgenderism is a sin. He declared all of those things as perversions of sexuality. And no matter what any government will ever say, they are wrong and he is right. And we must stand firm on what is true. You and I must acknowledge the absolute kingship of Jesus means the limited kingship and rule of all authority under him. And lastly, perhaps the biggest point being made in our text today, Christ's kingdom lasts forever. So we can take heart. All the wickedness of this world will be judged. If you ever get furious, feel enraged about the injustices all around the world and the way that even those who should be in positions of power for a reason to protect what is good and to punish what is evil, how they distort and pervert what is just. Christ will judge all things and he will do so perfectly. And his kingdom established has no end. Permanent, bulletproof, indestructible. And he has promised to win. Psalm 72, 18 through 19 closing. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. As we conclude our sermon time, we're going to transition into a time of communion together. This is where Christians take of the elements that represent Jesus's broken body and shed blood on the cross. If you're not a believer today, we want you to be one. We want you to realize that you are a sinner because Jesus declared it in his word. Because he told you you deserve eternal punishment. Conscious torment in hell forever because of your sin. And yet in his great love for us, he came to this earth, laid his life down for all who will ever believe. You want to have eternal life with him? You want to reign with him forever and not be subject to that punishment? then repent of your sins and turn in faith to him. And join us in communion. This is what the saints do. We don't go, we are the worthy ones who've done such good and mighty and wonderful things. We deserve this meal. No, this is a reminder of our lack of worth, our unworthiness, and yet the worthiness of Christ in his death. If you are a believer and you hold to that today, whether you're a member of this church or not, you are welcome to partake. You are a member of the universal body of Christ. Please come forward and grab these elements with us. When I pray, I'm going to say amen. You can come forward, take the stack of cups back to your seat, uh, and then we'll all take those elements together after everyone's had a chance to grab them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ, that in some amazing and spiritual way, we get to reign with him. We get to celebrate with him. We get to share in the, and revel in the joy experienced there forever with him. Father, it's just overwhelming to consider especially in light of just how wicked and awful the rulership of this world is. Anytime a man or a woman turns from you and seeks to lead contrary to your word, pretends that they are not under Jesus' authority, things get painful and bloody and awful and terrible. Father, help us to know our right place in this world and to know how to respond to the things that are going on. But first and foremost, help us to be firm in our resolve, trusting in Jesus and his finished work on the cross. Let us revel in that as we partake of this last supper, this communion meal together, remembering that only because of your great grace 
given in your son can we have eternal life. We pray all these things in Jesus' good name, amen.